Lord Jesus Christ, we've, as already mentioned, we've come today together to celebrate and remember the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate that the Son of God came into this world as a little baby. He was miraculously born of the Virgin Mary. But the birth of the Christ child congregation has staggering implications. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Prince of Peace. He brings peace on earth and goodwill to all who believe in him. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the mighty God. He is the King of Kings. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. So Christmas can never simply be about a baby born in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago. Christmas can never merely be a celebration of the birth of Christ because the birth of Christ cannot be separated from his death or from his resurrection. The birth of Christ cannot be separated from his ascension into heaven. His birth cannot be separated from the reason for his birth and the implications of his birth. Christ was born to fulfill the gospel promise made so long ago to our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. God gave them that promise to show them his grace and his love and his mercy. And in that promise, he offered them life, the life that they had lost. And so with that promise then comes also a call to believe and trust. Adam and Eve had to believe that promise. They had to accept that promise. And since Christ has come in fulfillment of that promise, we're also called to faith, called to respond in faith. God has fulfilled his promise to Adam and Eve, and in that fulfillment he also offers to us his love and grace and mercy, true life. And so we too are called to believe and trust. And so Christmas is much more than a birthday party, even though it's a special birthday, you could say. Christmas is about paradise regained. Christmas is about the defeat of sin and death and Satan. The message of Christmas is the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And the roots of this celebration find their origin in the beginning, in paradise, where God made a promise to our first parents after they rebelled against him. So the origin of Christmas, then, is found in that first gospel promise. And if you think about it, the fact that we celebrate Christmas, that's really a great miracle. It's truly astounding. Just look at verses 8 through 13 of our text and see how man responds to his guilt. Adam and Eve had just come face to face with their guilt and their shame And they felt it. They knew they were naked. So they felt their guilt and shame. And then they heard the sound of God coming into the garden. They recognized it because it must have happened before. And what did they do? Did they run to God for help? Did they beg him for mercy? Did they say, tell him what they had done? Did they ask for forgiveness? No. Instead, they run from God. They hide from God, or they try anyway. All they can do is think about themselves and what what can we do to make this problem go away? 
And that's our way too, isn't it? When we do something wrong, aren't we most often concerned with, with being found out rather than concerned that we have offended God? And we become experts at making excuses for our mistakes and justifying our sinful actions. We're just as foolish as our first parents. And we think we can hide from God, just like Adam and Eve thought they could hide amongst the trees of the garden. They could hide from God. But notice how God confronts them. God came to look for them. They tried to hide from the presence of God, but he made his presence felt. Where are you? He addresses, he addresses the man, because right? the man is primarily responsible for guarding and keeping the garden. Where are you, Adam? But this is not God looking for information as to like trying to figure out where Adam actually is. No, the Lord is giving Adam an opportunity to think carefully about why he's hiding. This was a question meant to probe his conscience. Because sin demands an accounting. God knows what is living in Adam's heart, but he's giving Adam an opportunity to come clean. He's giving Adam an opportunity to confess his guilt. But what does Adam say? I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. It's clear Adam is only talking to God because he has no other option. He wanted to hide, but he couldn't. And again, that's, that's the way it is with us too. Don't we often do the same thing? Have you ever noticed how hard it is to pray when you fall into sin? And when you hang on to your sins and don't want to let go of them for a time, your prayer life wanes and falters, doesn't it? And you don't really feel like reading your Bible because you're filled with, with guilt and shame and Maybe you would rather not even come to church then. We sometimes think we can run from God too. Well, we can run, but we can never hide because he will find you. Adam doesn't want God to find him either. He doesn't want to look for God either because his conscience is accusing him. He knows what he's done wrong. He knows that he sinned. And he's painfully aware then that he is naked, that he is defiled, that he is unclean, that he is unrighteous. And there's no covering his guilty soul. There's no covering for his soul. There's nothing between him and God now because of his sin. There's no covering for his sin. The only thing that he's facing is the holiness of God and the wrath of of God. That's why he's scared. He knows it. So he tries to hide. He wants to escape. Again, how very foolish. Because God is going to convict him of sin no matter how hard he fights back. Who told you that you were naked? The truth is, Adam told himself. His conscience is accusing him that he is naked. But God doesn't wait for an answer. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Again, that's, that's not really a question either. That's an accusation, isn't it? God is confronting Adam with his sin. Why is that? Because no one can be converted unless they are confronted with their sin. No one can be saved unless they first know that they are lost. 
No one will ever want to hear the good news unless they first understand the bad news. No one can find salvation until they are first convicted of sin. So you see in this brief interchange, you you see already the grace of God, don't you? See how God approaches man to convict man of sin. The Lord God, in love, seeks out the man who wants to hide from him. Congregation, do you see in that the love of God for sinners? Is there any hope? Well, God is bringing Adam to see his need. He wants Adam to see his need before a holy God. And even at this point, Adam is still trying to cover up his sin, right? He points away from himself. He blames his wife. She gave me of the fruit of the tree and I ate. But it gets even worse than that because he blames God. The woman you gave me. You just almost shudder when you hear Adam say that. Right? He's doing everything he can do to resist the conviction of sin. God is, is knocking on his heart, but Adam's doing whatever he can to ignore that knocking. Trying to justify his sin, pointing to his circumstances. It's because of who I live with. It's because of where I live. It's because of the position I'm in. And again, that attitude is with us today too, isn't it? Right? It's, it's, my, it's my little brother's fault. It's my parents' fault. God, it's, it's the gender you assigned me at birth. It's the government. They're making a mess of my life. And then Eve does the same thing. God says to her, what is this that you have done? She too is responsible. She has fallen prey to the seduction of the devil. The serpent deceived me and I ate. The devil made me do it. It wasn't really me. So she's doing the same thing as Adam. So you see the sinfulness of sin here? Do you recognize that? The audacity of sin? Man dares to accuse God even? Point a finger at the Creator? That's how an unrepentant heart reacts. That is, this is self-righteousness at the highest level. It doesn't get any worse. This is a man whose heart is utterly frozen by sin. Pass the buck, point the finger, blame God. And they didn't change, even though they were confronted by holy God himself. They will not change. They will not change until God gives them his grace. God is merciful. The absolutely astounding thing is that God does not rain down fire from heaven on them immediately. Instead, he showers them with his love and grace. And they don't even see it, at least not at first. Notice that they, they haven't repented. They haven't asked for forgiveness. They have not begged God for mercy. But God already has the solution. That's what he does. In his superabundant grace, he is the one who comes to Adam. He calls to Adam. He wants to talk to Adam. When he says, Adam, where are you? He's really saying, Adam, come to me. Come to me, Adam. It's God who takes the initiative. And that's always the case, isn't it? It's always God first in relation to man. 
That's the way it was with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, David. When the Lord Jesus called his disciples, God always takes the initiative. In love, he confronts his children. And this is confrontation. Confrontation, that's that's an act of love. Even though by nature we too want to hide from God, he comes after us. If it were up to us, we would still be in league with Satan. But the Lord ensures that the children of light remain, that they will always remain separated from the children of darkness. And that comes out clearly in verse 15 where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Why does God do that? Well, that's because the first man and the first woman, they made it very clear that they wanted to cozy up to Satan. They wanted to be in covenant with Satan. They had gone over to the kingdom of darkness. They were on friendly terms with the devil, with God's adversary. But God wants them to be aware of who this deceiver really is. He wants them to see that Satan is the enemy, and so he puts enmity between them. And this enmity that God pronounces is a gift of grace. God says, I am going to do this. I am going to put hostility between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours. It is God who is doing this deliberately. Why? Well, again, because it's in our nature to gravitate to the kingdom of darkness. Because of original sin, we love to cozy up to the world. Because of original sin, we we find it difficult and tiresome always to be separated from the world. And to be aware of and fight against temptation. As disciples of Christ, we know that we cannot, we must not fit in, for example, with with worldly entertainment, with with a worldly way of life, with with the desire for materialism. We know we shouldn't be indulging in those things. The New Testament makes it very clear. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. James 4, verse 4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So again, it's it's God's grace that this enmity exists because it keeps us from going back to the kingdom of darkness. It keeps us from going back to Satan's side. But there's more. Not only does God pronounce enmity, but he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, this is how this enmity is going to play out in the history of redemption. There is going to be continuous conflict between the children of darkness and the children of light, between those in the kingdom of Satan and those in the kingdom of God between the church and the world. But in this conflict, the offspring of Satan are going to be restricted to bruising the heel. And the offspring of the woman will land the telling blow because this offspring will bruise the head of Satan. Now sometimes this word bruise is given a different translation, strike or crush, But the point is that the same word is used for both, for the bruising of the heel and the bruising of the head. It's the same same word. But the key distinction is between the heel and the head. 
These are metaphors for a fatal wound and a non-fatal wound. And that means that ultimately the seed of the woman will conquer. Ultimately the seed of the woman will defeat the offspring of Satan and Satan himself. And God is going to make that happen. And throughout this hostile battle, God will protect the offspring of the woman and ensure that Satan will face complete defeat. And that's evident, too, when you read through the history of of God's people in the Old Testament, for example. In Genesis 4, we read how Cain killed Abel, his brother. That was the work of Satan. Satan was trying to make sure that the offspring of the woman were wiped out. But God defeats Satan by giving Adam and Eve another son, Seth through whom the line of the woman continues. And you see this throughout the Old Testament again and again. God saves Noah and his family, eight persons in the ark, while the unrighteous world perishes. You see that in how God protects the baby boys of the Hebrews in Egypt when Pharaoh instructed the midwives to ensure that all those little boys were killed. You see it in the book of Judges, where God continually saves his people, continually gives them another faithful judge, Again and again, every time they fall away from him. You see that also when the Lord causes his people to be brought into Babylon in exile. And the wicked plan of Haman is thwarted because God raises up Esther to be the queen. Again and again, the Lord saves his people and he he calls them back to himself. The devil wants to destroy the kingdom of God. But God continually interferes on behalf of his people, on behalf of the line of the woman. And that's because he is directing the whole thing, congregation. He is directing the history of redemption, bringing it to the point in history where ultimately the he of he will bruise your head will appear. So the whole story of the Bible is going somewhere. He will bruise your head. That's where it needs to get to. That's God's plan. And the devil's agenda is that God's plan will not succeed. But after many years and many prophecies, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Adam and Eve did happen in the coming of the Son of God when he became a man, when he was born of the Virgin Mary. But even then, Satan is still trying, right? He entices Herod to destroy all the two-year-old boys in, in Bethlehem, hoping that the Messiah would be killed too. But again, he's not successful. He can only nip at the heels of the offspring of the woman. But the baby born in Bethlehem also becomes a man and begins his ministry on earth. Satan cannot defeat God's plan. He cannot thwart the promise that God made to Adam and Eve. He cannot thwart that promise from being fulfilled. But he keeps on trying, right? The first thing that happens after Jesus is baptized and anointed with the Holy Spirit. He's driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And as we heard last week from the first part of Genesis, his his temptation is the same as as he tried with Eve, right? Just do it my way. Do it the easy way. Why would God bring the Son of God into the wilderness to starve? Doesn't he care about you? Why do you need to go to the cross? Why the way of the suffering? i got a much better plan, a much easier plan for you than God has. But finally, we see that there is someone who stands up to this deceiver, 
Right? And the second Adam does what the first Adam fails to do. And the Son of God says, Be gone, Satan. Be gone, you deceiver, you liar, you twister of God's word. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So when Messiah comes, the devil has met his match. And when Messiah has come, the Garden of Eden, which has turned into a desert, will eventually be turned into a garden again. We read from John 12. Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That is why Jesus was born. To defeat Satan. Well, congregation, this is all God's work. And it is marvelous in our eyes. You see how in Genesis 3, verse 15, you find the first hint of Christmas? This is the pronouncement of the coming Savior. This is how God first introduces the person and work of the Savior. He is the ultimate seed of the woman. He would become one of us. He would tabernacle among us. Emmanuel, God with us. And he is the one who would bruise the head of the serpent. And ultimately, of course, this points to the cross. Because at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, in humble obedience, crushed the one who has the power of death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of, the de- fear of death. Well, when the world looks to the cross, the world sees nothing but scorn and shame. Right? Foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews. But when we look to the cross, we see victory. Victory and triumph. You see, Jesus was not a victim because he went there voluntarily. He defeated Satan. He is the victor over death and Satan. Well, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, when you look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, you get a picture of how sinful sin really is, don't you? You see how our first parents tried to back out of any responsibility for their actions. You see how Adam blamed God for his problem. But we also understand that by nature we're not one bit different than our first parents. And after seeing all of this and taking this in, isn't it absolutely astounding that we're sitting here today celebrating Christmas? That's a miracle that we are here right now celebrating Christmas. That God comes to us with the gospel of Christ is no less a miracle than God's promise to our first parents in paradise And notice something else. You read carefully through Genesis 3. Did you ever notice that before God curses the snake and before God announces grace through enmity, Adam and Eve had not even asked God yet to forgive them? You ever notice that? They had not yet asked for forgiveness. They were still busy protesting and still busy pointing the finger when God proclaimed the gospel. That's amazing, isn't it? Their hearts were still hardened, and God is giving them grace. 
It's not until after God pronounces punishment on Eve in childbearing and on Adam through cursing the ground that you see a response. It's after they receive this punishment that Adam names his wife Eve, for she would become the mother of all the living. That's Adam's response of faith. It's after grace that that response comes. And this pattern is true for us as well. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 5. God shows his love for us that in that, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's the same for us as for our first parents. Grace comes to us before we even ask for it. So it's truly a miracle that we are celebrating Christmas today. But for the grace of God, we would remain in our sins. But for the grace of God, we would still be on the side of Satan. We would still be in the kingdom of darkness. But for the grace of God, we would never experience the miracle of regeneration rebirth, and conversion. But for the grace of God, we would never receive life. But for the grace of God, the Son of God would never have come into this world. He would never have become one of us. He would never have bruised the head of Satan. And we would not be sitting here today. But we are. And thanks be to God, we can celebrate the true meaning of Christmas And what it means for us. Not just today, but every day of our lives. And of course, today we're still waiting for the ultimate consummation of God's promise to Adam and Eve. One day Christ will return on the clouds of heaven. And then Satan's defeat will be final. But in the meantime, we can take comfort and courage from Christ's victory. Satan's head has been bruised. And he can only nip at our heels. In this life, every moment of suffering, every effect of sin, every poisonous bite from the serpent finds its antidote in the blood of Christ. The sting of death has been removed, and our inheritance of eternal life on the new heavens and the new earth, it is secure. Congregation, that's God's superabundant grace for us, revealed already in paradise, in Christ God has made that possible. He has fulfilled and is fulfilling the promise that he made to Adam and Eve. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Amen.